everybody. Good to see everybody this morning. Welcome to Generations Church, and uh, my name's Scott, if, if you're new with us this morning. I'm one of our pastors here. And uh, this morning, I'm very excited. I, I'm, I'm, I'm really keyed up. I'm going to be, I'll probably be talking a little bit fast today because I got a lot to do. You know, we don't, we don't want to mess around. Um, if, you know, if you know me, uh, I'm, I'm kind of a no-nonsense kind of preacher, so we're just going <laughs> to dive right in. <laughs> I can't even say that without laughing. Okay, anyway, so... Uh, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to John 14. This morning, we're ki- picking back up on our series, uh, Jesus Is. Jesus Is. And the big idea is that we're taking some time in these weeks leading up to Easter to explore who Jesus is, to get to know this person of Jesus. And we're doing it uh, through these four very epic words that Jesus is identified uh, by in John's gospel. In, J- in John chapter 1, we looked at uh, a few weeks ago, he's called the Word. And then in, in John uh, 14, 6, powerful scripture, he is the way, he's the truth and the life. And this morning, I want to focus on that word right there in the middle, the truth. And here's why we're exploring this, just to kind of remind us, why are we doing this? It's not just kind of an academic exercise so we can learn some more scriptures. Um, as we study Jesus, and as we're open to discovering what the scriptures say about Jesus, uh, we start to understand who he is a little better. And, and this opens the door, what that opens the door to is you pursuing a deeper relationship with Jesus and, and falling more and more in love with Jesus. That's my greatest desire for every single one of you, is for you to form a deeper relationship with Jesus, to fall more and more in love with Jesus. Everything that we're about is relationship. When you think about it, when you boil down the most important things in your life, the things that really matter, you notice they all seem to boil down to relationship. The things that you do with your family boils down to relationship. The, re- the thing that we're doing right here together, where we're ministering to each other, we're strengthening our relationship with each other. We call that in-reach around here. Uh, when we step out these doors, and for the next six days until next Sunday, we all get to partake of something we call outreach, which is our relationship with the world around us and our neighbors and the people, like Pastor was saying, the people at our schools and the people at our workplace. That's our outreach. And this morning, as we delve into these scriptures to, to look a little bit closer at who Jesus is. We call that upreach. We're, we're reaching up to, to strengthen our relationship in Jesus. Because anything that really matters, anything that really matters, if you boil it down, it's going to have something to do with relationship. Anyway, my little two cents about that. So let's talk today about truth a little bit, okay? The word truth conjures up a whole bunch of things probably in your mind. Truth nowadays, kind of, you know, kind of a little bit wishy-washy, one of those things that's a little fuzzy. The word truth uh, in this scripture, it comes from the Greek word aletheia. Aletheia, and that, and that word means what is real and what is ideal. It refers to what is real and what is ideal. And this morning, I really want to focus on these two dimensions of truth as it kind of pertains to Jesus. Now, in everyday life, you know in your heart uh, what is ideal, right? Uh, so some of you might, you might even think of yourself as like idealistic. You're really led by your ideals, you know, the way things really should be out there. Some of you are more practical, you know, a little more situational. But all of us have in our heart like ideals. The, you know, what would be really awesome if it were true? Uh, but how many of you know what is ideal? doesn't always reflect reality, right? Uh, you may have this personal philosophy that guides you. You know, you're, you're, you're an idealistic person. You've got this credo. You know, you, you get up in the morning and you kind of march by this thing. And yeah, it's my personal philosophy. But how many of you know, you probably do or say things every single day that butt right up against or even contradict your personal philosophy, right? The reality doesn't always match up to the ideal, in our, in our lives, and that's okay. Just ask any politician, right? They may campaign on claims that sound super idealistic, right? Especially in primaries, right? Super idealistic and, and wonderful to you. And then when it comes to the job of real governing, we're, we're left kind of scratching our heads at some of their decisions they made, right? Because the ideals don't always match up with reality. Okay, some of you moms and dads out there, you may have an ideal approach to parenting. 
You've got the ideal. Like you were at the Real Families Conference a couple weeks ago. You took good notes. You've been reading the books. You, you got it all down, right? You've armed yourself with the latest techniques of being super parent. You know. You know what you're supposed to do. You know how to be calm and understanding and listen and firm and raise these little tiny human beings into like champions for God. You know because you, you, you have that ideal in your heart. You are going to be incredibly wise. It's all in there. And yet, this morning, you tripped over their toy and yelled at them. You did. I know you did, right? I can't be the only one. <laughs> Ideally, I would jog five miles a day. The reality is I think about jogging, you know, and I reach for a Danish. Um, much to my wife's chagrin, right? Ideally, I would use a napkin when I eat. Uh, ideally, I wouldn't eat macaroni and cheese with my fingers, right? Nobody's perfect. Um, just, you got to deal with these things. Um, in this world, what is ideal and, and what's reality are usually two different things. And here is where Jesus breaks every mold. Because what is real, what is ideal... With Jesus, it's not either or, it's both and. He is real, he's the reality, and he is ideal. No one is more real than him, and he's definitely the ideal. Um, I read a story about a guy named Pat Williams. He's a vice president of an NBA basketball team, the Orlando Magic. And Pat Williams, uh, you know, he's, he's a pretty rich guy, I'm imagining, VP of a basketball team. So he says that whenever he gets into a limousine, you know, as, as we all do every week, um, Whenever he gets into a limousine, he makes it a, a practice. He always, always asks the driver, what is, what's some of the most interesting people that they've ever driven, that they've ever picked up? Because he always hears interesting stories. So he loves to hear what, what, they, what they tell him. And uh, like the one driver told him, his most memorable passengers were Dustin Hoffman and Joan Rivers. Dustin Hoffman and Joan Rivers. He's, and the driver said that they were really down to earth, just like regular, real people. Um, another driver told him that he once carried Henry Kissinger and Colin Powell at the same time. Henry Kissinger and Colin Powell, these political figures. And he said what, what struck the driver so much is that they were, they were genuinely down to earth. They were humble. They didn't act like big shots. He said they didn't act like, they didn't ask for uh, like crazy stuff like a lot of famous people ask him for. Um, another guy told him, he was amazed at how genuinely cheerful uh, Richard Simmons was when he got into his cab. For those of you who missed out on the 80s, and I'm so sorry you did, Richard Simmons was this just bizarre little fitness guru who was just like extra, extra happy all the time. Like way too happy. Um, but Pat Williams, he noticed something. He said he noticed something in common. Most of the passengers that stuck out to these limo drivers, they, they, tend, you know, they were famous people, but they were still real and down to earth. And that stuck out to these guys, people who acted in private like they acted like their public image. And so, you know, I mean, think about it. We've all met people who, um, you know, just they, they're, they're trying to be impressive you met people like that. Uh, they, they try to impress, impress you. And you can, you can just tell kind of folks, you know, when you're talking to them, they're, just, they're really swinging for the fences. They're just trying to kind of puff themselves up to you. And, you know, and you're thinking to yourself, why are you, do, you don't got to do this, you know, just, just be yourself. But, you know, those people. And the irony is, right, that when we try to appear impressive, it appears really unimpressive. What's, what's most impressive to almost all of us is someone who doesn't try to impress, right? They're just down to earth, right? They're just, hey, this is, this is me. And that's what I love about Jesus. I love about, he's the son of God. Okay, Jesus is the son of God. There's nobody holier than Jesus. We're talking about the one and only God of the universe, right? Creator of all things. And he comes down in the flesh, and there's nobody more down to earth than Jesus, he laughs with people. He cries with people. He prays with people. He plays with kids. I mean, this is Jesus. He, 
you know what I notice? He never seems to like f- see himself as, as above a situation going on. Like what's happening, this is, you know, I, I'm, he just, he, you talk about relationship. Jesus was the master of relationship. Just, he was intimately involved wherever he went at whatever was going on. Intimately involved. Philippians 2, just read this real fast. 2 verse 6 says, He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, he humbled himself. So here's, I think, where we can take a a good cue from Jesus. Jesus was holy, right? We can all agree on that. Jesus was holy, but he was not, he was never holier than thou, right? He was holy. You don't get holier than him. Some, (laughs) we laugh. So, So, some of us are trying to out-holy Jesus, <laughs> and you're not going to get there. He was never holier than thou. With Jesus, there was no hidden agenda. He was so transparent. There was no pretense. He acted in private the way he acted in public. He, and, and one of the words I think we can definitely perfectly describe Jesus with is the word real. And, in fact, you can look to Jesus as ultimate reality. Jesus is that ultimate reality. We live in a culture, let's face it, we live in a culture that is craving reality, right? They, we crave reality. I think it's no accident that in, in the last 10 years, the, the, the fastest growing form of entertainment on television is reality shows. It's the fastest growing reality shows. Um, and we're so bombarded every day by fake I think that's one of the reasons why these are popular with people, because we're so bombarded by fake, fake advertising, fake false claims, you know, uh, false motives in the workplace that, you know, where you work, and, and uh, marketing false, false claims by, you know, leaders in government, false promises. We're surrounded by fake, and the result is that we crave something authentic. We crave the authentic. So millions of Americans tune in to dozens of reality shows every single week. Why do we do this? Because people crave reality. They crave it. Jesus lived in a very different culture than we do, right? But those people craved the exact same thing we do. They craved reality. They They craved something authentic after a thousand years of nothing but heartache and heartbreak and oppression. They craved something authentic. People were desperate for a glimpse of something real with Jesus. In Luke 19, there's a guy who works as a tax collector, and he climbs a tree just to get a glimpse of Jesus because he craved that reality. In Luke 8, there's a sick woman who, who's, who's bleeding, and she's sick, and she, climbs, she crawls through a crowd just to touch the hem of his clothes because she craved that reality. In, in Matthew 15, there, there's this crowd of thousands of people who go for days without food just to hear Jesus talk because they craved it. There was something they weren't getting from anything else, right? In, in Mark chapter 2, there's these men who lower their, their friend who's paralyzed down through a hole in the roof just to touch Jesus and get, just to get healed. In Luke chapter 7, there's a prostitute who crashes a party a party being thrown by a Pharisee, no less, just to wash Jesus' feet. You couldn't keep people away from Jesus. They wouldn't stay away. Why? Because they craved reality. Bruce Barton says, the essential common trait in people who have one of these magnetic personalities, you know people who just have that, you probably, you probably know someone who's like, and where folks are just seem to be like pulled towards them, um, is that they, they share an all-consuming sincerity. An all-consuming sincerity. What's interesting is that Jesus is holy, but as holy as he was, you notice common people were not threatened by his righteousness? When we think of somebody who's like really, really, really holy, we think, oh, well, that's going to really turn off the world. You know, that's going to like kind of push away the world. No, no, no. Do you know if you're genuine... If you're like really genuine and walking in the holiness of Jesus, you're going to attract people to you. You know who's repelled by that kind of openness, that sort of authenticity? Religious people. 
religious people freak out a little bit. You get a little too authentic. The world's going to be attracted to you. They're going to crave what it is that you have. And Jesus, his authenticity was irresistible. People felt relaxed around Jesus because he accepted their humanness. Now, he didn't condone sin, you know. He wasn't like that, but he didn't expect perfection either. He was never shocked by people's imperfection. His 12 disciples that he handpicked himself, they were full of imperfections, right? I think sometimes with us, I might be just speaking of myself and assuming anybody else is maybe like me, but I think we sometimes have a double standard. We publicly preach imperfection is okay, you know, one of our values, it's okay to not be okay. And we publicly preach that and we say, hey, all have sinned. Everyone's fallen short. But privately, we expect perfection from those around us. And, and we say, oh, nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. But we have this tiny, tiny margin of error when it comes to others, right? Nobody's perfect. No, we've all sinned and come short. But like, did you see the way she just looked at me when she walked by? She's, we're done, Right? <laughs> She's out of my life. I don't need that, right? Tiny, tiny margin of error when it comes to our relationships with people. So here's the bottom line. When it comes to truth uh, on, on this subject, we are not called to be fault finders, as it says in Jude. We're called to a consuming sincerity. We're called to a consuming sincerity. The word truth, one of the meanings is free from pretense, and Psalm 51.6 puts it this way. It says, you desire truth in the inner parts. Lord, you desire truth in my inner parts. God wants us to model ourselves after Christ. The truth. He is the truth. He doesn't just tell us truth. He is the truth. And, and Christ wants us to be authentic. He wants us to be sincere on the outside and on the inside. Not not perfect, but real, sincere, real. Uh, I want to look at a little story in the Old Testament that I think is, is really cool. In 1 Kings, if you want to, you can go there. In 1 Kings chapter 14, there's this king named Jeroboam. And Jeroboam's he's not like a good guy. He's kind, of, he's kind of messed up. He's a little, you know, he's kind of a dirty, rotten scoundrel. And uh, he's always getting in trouble with the prophets because he, you know, he does wicked things. He does terrible things. And then they condemn him. And so he and the prophets don't get along. Uh, they don't like him and he doesn't like them. But something happened and uh, he, he gets really worried because his son is sick. Uh, as, as any dad would be, he's, he's, we, he got worried, and so he decides he needs to consult the prophet. The prophet at that time was a man named Ahijah. So he wants to consult the prophet. The problem is the, he knows the prophet doesn't like him and is going to say something really rude to him probably, and he didn't really like the prophet because that prophet's always being rude to him. And so he figures, i, I got to do something. I, I got to go see the prophet, but I need to do it in secret because he's gotten in all this trouble with the prophets in the past, and they keep giving him a hard time for being so wicked and all this kind of so, so he comes up with a plan. He comes up with his great plan. He says, hey, he says to his wife, honey, I got a plan. Here we, here's, disguise yourself so you won't be recognized as my wife and go to Shiloh and see the prophet. Put on this disguise. It, it can't fail. Right? Now, this is a really f- kind of a funny story because here's the deal. The prophet Ahijah is totally blind. He cannot see out of his eyeballs. There is nothing happening. He, she, he can't see. She could dress like a circus performer, and he can't see her, but he's telling her, disguise yourself and go see the prophet. And so, so, so uh, he can't see, but see, God is kind of cool, and God has this covered, and he, God tells Ahijah, the prophet, hey, Jeroboam's wife's coming, and she's going to be pretending to be somebody else. Right? So God lets him know, you know, the, the secret. How many of you parents, like, wish God just would always, like, let you know what's going on with your kids? Right? Hey, they're doing this in the other room. You should just know that. Right? Okay, now admit, how many of you parents have told your kids when they were really little, God tells me everything you do? <laughs> I've used that. Um, 
He works till they're about that high. Uh, yeah, so, so let me stop for a second and we'll look at this story. And it's kind of funny. We laugh at this. But seriously, aren't all of us guilty of this? We're all guilty of this to some degree. We fear what others are going to think of us. We fear that others are going to judge us or, you know, if they knew who we really are. And so we put on masks. We put on disguises. A.W. Tozer, the, the theologian, he said this, there's hardly a man or a woman who dares to be just what he or she is without doctoring up the impression. We just can't help ourselves. Some of us are, you know, some of us are just huge frauds. Some of us are basically true, but, you know, we, we can't help doctoring it up a little bit. You know, we're, we're going to put our best foot forward. This, this is why, by the way, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, who is the founder of Facebook, is a multi-billionaire today. This is why. Because we have finally have a way to go online and present ourselves as anything we want. Right? Our best selves, to put it nicely, right? More often than not, just a totally false self. But we can put our we 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 can be anything we want on online, right? And so we can go online and we can put like, oh, I was I was just thinking about this little uh, passage from this French philosopher today, and it just made me think about something or another and everything. You know, when you like just read it ten minutes ago, and you've like never read Sartre in your whole life, but you know, it makes you look really deep, right? We all want to be deep. Until until a few months ago, uh, it, it just changed, but for. For the past several years, the fastest growing social media site, Instagram. Fastest growing. Okay, Instagram is a site that literally allows you to take pictures and show these pictures to the world of things that you have photographed and then doctor them to make them more cool than reality. I mean, think about that. And that's the fastest growing site, right? You get to take a picture and doctor it to make it look more cool than reality, right? So, so that your grilled cheese sandwich looks like something out of like a steampunk novel now. <laughs> Why do we love these sites? Why do we love them? Because we crave the idea of crafting an identity. It's, it's natural. It doesn't make you evil. It just makes you human. We crave being able to craft an identity. And, and there's nothing wrong with putting our best foot forward, Right? I mean, if you're, if, you're, hey, if you're, you know, making a resume to try to go get a job, spell check that thing, right? Make sure it looks good. Put your best foot forward. But, but there's a fine line between making a good first impression and trying to be what we aren't, right? If we try to be who we aren't, the end result is something that Tozer calls the burden of pretense, and this phrase just jumped at me, the burden of pretense, meaning what this means is that false face that we, we put on, it actually makes your life more internally stressful, right? Because you're not being true to yourself because you can't, you can't be yourself. You're having to carry this thing all the time, and your pretense becomes a burden. There's a, a journalist named uh, Meg, uh, Meg Greenfield. She's with the Washington Post. And she writes these really interesting pieces about life in Washington, D.C. And uh, I don't know if, if you've ever read her, but anyway, it's kind of insightful. It kind of tells about the culture of Washington. And, and she had an interesting thing. She wrote that Washington, she compared Washington to high school. She said this. Um, she said, high school is a preeminently nervous place. How many of you can relate to that, thinking back to high school? Or, or you might be in high school right now. Uh, that perfectly describes my high school experience. Preeminently nervous place. What a great description. Um, and she says this. She says, Washington is even worse. <laughs> so imagine high school, but, but filled with like grown men and women who are all preeminently nervous. You're, she says you're always in danger of political extinction. And she, she says this, in Washington, you can't rest on your laurels because there's always someone who has better laurels. Which always begs the question with me, what are laurels and why can't I sit on them? I don't know. I, I still don't know that answer. Maybe you can come, come up and tell me after service. 
but you can't rest on them. I know that. Um, Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C., this is whole city full of men and women acting like nervous teenagers. Uh, the other day, this is kind of a bittersweet story. Uh, the other day, I was walking with my, my son, my younger son, who's seven. And I was walking him to school, as I do every, every day, his school day. It's, it's pretty close. We it's just down the street, kind of turn a little corner, and, and uh, we take a little shortcut through the woods, and we're right there at his school. So I always enjoy that, that moment in my morning. And so Mason is my little guy, if those of you who know him. He's, of my two sons, he's the kind of carefree, uh, uh, like, like dream, big dreams, no matter who's watching kind of kind of guy. He's he's living living large. And we're walking along school and we're taking this little shortcut and he's eating his little uh toaster waffle, his little breakfast snack. And he's just bouncing along, we're eating, walking to school, and he gets close to outside of our little shortcut where we're gonna be inside of the school. And he hands me the waffle really fast. He says, Here, you, you take it, take take the waffle. And I said, well, Macy, we still got a little bit of time. You still got another minute or so, you know, as we're walking. You can finish it. You can finish it. And he said something that kind of broke my heart. He said, I can't let anybody see me eating my waffle. The other kids will laugh at me. And I was so bummed out when he said that. Because this is my little guy who, you know, dances like nobody's watching. And I thought, oh, gosh, I, I hate that moment when... We grow up and we start believing in the imaginary monster of other people's opinion. And it only happens when you grow up. And I hated that moment. And it made me sad. And anyway, I choked up. Anyway, I took his waffle. (laughs) That's right. It made him feel better. So... Uh, Meg Greenfield, the Washington Post lady, she, she goes on to say this. She said, high school is the time when people first contrive to have an image. It's an attempt to fabricate a whole second persona for public consumption. Life inside the image requires continuous care, feeding, and above all, protection. And that's the worst of it. It's like never being able to get undressed. We are, most of us, much of the time, in disguise. So transparency apparently doesn't come very natural to in a place like Washington, D.C. Uh, I think it doesn't come very easy in a place like Spring, Texas, either. Uh, nor did it come easy for people in first century Jerusalem, for that matter. Listen to what Jesus says about the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He says, everything they, do, they have done is for people to see. Is for people to see. You can sum up the religiosity of the Pharisees in three words. Image is everything. Image is everything. And you can't read the Gospels without noticing something right off the bat. You discover pretty quickly that Jesus, his real hot button was hypocrisy. This is the one sin of all the things that people were, you know, up to. This is the one thing that he seemed to have, like, very little mercy for hypocrisy, the insincerity of the Pharisees. He was incredibly understanding and merciful for the failings of people, but insincerity was something that Jesus, it's like he didn't have the time of day for it. So back to our our story in 1 Kings 14. The wife of Jeroboam, she arrives at the door. She's checking her disguise. You know, she's got the little mustache on or whatever she's got. She's rehearsing her lines. Uh, But even before she like knocks on the door, uh, It says in verse 6, When Ahijah heard the sound of her footsteps at the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. (laughs) Right? Doe busted. And then the the prophet asks the uh, $64,000 question, Why this pretense? Why this pretense? A.W. Tozer says, The rest that God offers is the blessed relief which comes when we accept ourselves for what we are and cease to pretend. There's a rest in that. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news. That's what it means, good news. And part of that good news is that we get to quit pretending to be perfect. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth 
is not in us. Who is the truth? Jesus. If you claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the cure to the burden of pretense, as A.W. Tozer calls it, that burden of pretense, the cure is repentance. Now think about that. The cure for that burden is repentance. Repentance isn't condemnation. It's not being made to feel like a dog. Repentance is freedom. Repentance is freedom. We're not free because we're doing everything right. That makes me free. That's backwards. See, we are able to walk rightly because he has set us free. You are able to walk rightly because he set you free. In, in the Psalms 119, it says, I have chosen the way of truth. Who's the truth? I'm just checking. I have chosen the way of truth. I have set my heart on your laws. I run in the path of your commandments. Why? Because you have set my heart free. I'm able to do this. I'm able to pursue and chase after you, Lord. I'm able to be a disciple because you have set my heart free. I don't have to wait to get perfect to get free. You set my heart free, and now I can chase after you. Jesus is ultimate reality. But remember we said there's two, kind of two meanings to this uh, truth. It's, it's, it's what's real, and it's what is ideal. Because Jesus is also our ideal. And one of the definitions of truth that I found is a model of imitation. Truth, a model of imitation. When something is the ideal in your life, it's the thing that we want to strive toward, right? Like we said in the beginning. There might be a big discrepancy between what is true and what is ideal, you know, the reality and what is ideal. But still, it's what you're striving towards. You know, even if you did step on the toy and, and yell at your kid, you, you, there, there's a better way that you're trying to get to, Right? So when something is the ideal, it's the thing we want to strive toward, the thing we want to imitate, and that, is, that thing is Jesus. What we want to imitate is Jesus because he is the ideal. Now, uh, I, I'm, I'm using a lot of words today, but really, really like listen for the next 10 minutes because this is important. Jesus is the ideal. Jesus, the man, the person, God, Jesus is the ideal. There's a tendency for every one of us to want to pattern our lives after somebody, I do that. I have kind of like heroes in the faith. I have my father. I love, I love, I idolize him. And we all, we all want to pattern our lives after different people, consciously or unconsciously. Uh, psychologists call it the chameleon effect. Most people tend to imitate the people around them. Everything from facial expressions to your inflections, the way you say things, you just kind of, you'll, you'll pick up stuff, you know, as you, as you grow, especially when you're growing up, you know, you'll pick up things. Um, it's why married couples, as they, over the years, they start to see more alike, right? They become more alike as they grow older. Uh, it's why you can tell a lot about a person by looking at their friends. You can tell a lot about a person's friends by looking at them and the things they say and the way they say them, right? Because we are natural imitators. We just are. And there's no one greater to imitate than Jesus, there is no one you can imitate better than Jesus. That, that's the greatest choice. And that's why, that's why I want to I learn to love and lead and serve and, and pray just like Jesus, right? I might have some heroes that I admire out there in the world, but who I really want to learn to emulate is Jesus. And that's why you and I are called to be disciples. Now, this is important. Disciples are not just students of Jesus. If we were just students of Jesus, then all we need to do is come to church. This is mission accomplished then. You're a student of Jesus. You came to class. You listen. You might take a note or two, and you're done until next Sunday. We'll see you later. You know, you're learning facts about him. But a disciple is not a student. A disciple is an imitator, an imitator of Jesus. That's what being a disciple is. So a discipleship is making this conscious decision to pattern your life after Christ, the Redeemer. He is our Redeemer. We pattern our life after him. We don't pattern our life after a religion, we, not after a set of laws or, or religious regulations or something like that. We pattern ourselves 
after the one true thing in this universe, and that is Jesus. He's the one true thing. Because Jesus is the truth. Okay? I know I'm, I'm just, I'm on a broken record this morning. Jesus is the truth. He's the truth. He is the truth. Jesus is the truth. Now, I know that can get a little bit fuzzy. It sounds kind of like, it, it, it's very, it's very, uh, it, it's, it's hard to wrap your, your hands around that. Don't feel bad. You're not alone. It turns out, it was fuzzy for the very first Christians too. Okay? It turns out that the implications of this fact, that Jesus is the truth, it had to be dealt with all the way back to the very earliest days of the church, as Christianity was just starting out. Not even days after Jesus uh, gives us the great commission, he ascends into heaven, human beings were already starting to miss the point of Jesus as the truth, right? And, and they, they already, immediately, what did they do? They started setting up institutions as ultimate truth, okay? Those earliest Christians from day one had to wrestle with what this really meant for us. And here, here's what happened. I, I've just got a few more minutes, so I'm going to talk really fast because I'm really excited about this. I think this is kind of cool. Um, uh, oh, a huge debt, by the way, let me just say, to, to uh, Andy Stanley's book, uh, Deep and Wide, he describes this in a way that it just came alive to me for one of the first times. Okay, so here's what happened. I'm going to set the stage. You ready? Jesus, he dies on the cross. He rises from the dead. He tells, all the, he tells everybody, hey, crowd, crowd around, huddle up. I got something huge to tell you. I'm going to give you a really important mission. Here it is. Go into all the world and preach the good news. Okay, and go. And he ascends to heaven and it's all great. And right after that, what happens? The church literally explodes on the scene. Opening day, Pentecost Sunday, thousands of Jews throughout the city of Jerusalem are in the city and they embrace Jesus as Messiah. Thousands of people on day one. It's awesome. The church literally ex exponentially increases its size overnight. Suddenly there's thousands of Christians. It's beautiful. Now, here's a really important detail. I want you to keep in the back of your mind while I'm talking fast about other stuff. This is the important detail. These early followers of Christ did not consider themselves converts to something new. Let me explain. They were mostly Jews. Jerusalem was filled with Jews. It was, they were celebrating a Jewish festival, and they weren't joining a new religion. What they, what they heard was that Jesus is the fulfillment of of thousands of years of Jewish prophecies. Jesus is the fulfillment, right? After all, he's the Jewish Messiah that had been promised through Abraham and the prophets and all that good stuff. Becoming a follower of Jesus to these guys was simply the next step, right? So they're not like becoming something else. They're like becoming super Jews, right? <laughs> Woo! We're, you know, we're like the complete Jew. That's the way they thought of themselves. We're accepting Jesus. He's the Messiah. He came. All the prophecies have come true. Well, that's all great except for what happened next. Because Jesus, remember what he told his disciples before he, whew, went he said, go into all the world and preach the good news. So a few of the evangelists actually did that. They started going out into all the world, preaching the good news. Before long, the good news exploded on the scene. It's bursting forth throughout Southern Europe and the Middle East and Asia. It's, it's like all over the place. And the message overflows to these non-Jewish communities. Okay. In the Bible, they're called Gentiles. That just means not Jewish. Gentiles. And they started to believe. These people heard the message of Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Oh, this is awesome. Yeah, we want this. You know, the new birth, new life. Yeah, we get to be part of the kingdom. And once they believed, they wanted to join this Jesus movement. We're in. We want to be part of the way, right? It turns out, many of the Jewish Christians, not quite ready for that. And, and you can kind of understand, Jesus is their Messiah, Okay? They have been suffering blood, sweat, and tears for thousands of years. They've been waiting a long time for their Messiah. Lots of heartache waiting for Jesus that they had put into this. And as more and more non-Jewish Gentiles, they, they believe and they receive Jesus, and they're all here, and they're about Jesus. And, and they start forming their own little Jesus gatherings, right? And they're not going to, like, Jewish synagogues, which is the Jewish Christians. We're still meeting in the synagogues to read Scripture and pray together. Uh, these guys were, like, meeting in their homes and stuff, you know, like under trees. Um, and, and, and they weren't viewing this revolution that was taking place in their life as a conversion 
away from Judaism, or a conversion to Judaism. These pagan guys who became saved, they weren't viewing this as a conversion to Judaism. They didn't know anything about Judaism. They didn't have a Torah sitting around. They didn't know anything about that. And this was a real problem for the Jewish believers. How could someone become a follower of the Jewish Messiah without becoming Jewish? Right? It seems like a good question. It seems like a reasonable question when you kind of think about it, right? To them, it seemed like these new Gentile Christians were skipping a really important, huge step of becoming Jewish. I was thinking of an analogy. Now remember, keep in mind, analogies are only as good until you take them so far and then they break down and they're not good anymore. So it's not a perfect analogy. It just kind of will help us maybe kind of understand what it might have been like for, for one of these new Jewish Christians. Let's pretend like you and I are Christians, okay? You and I are Christians. Yay, we love Jesus. We're saved. And then, oh, we get together and we, we find this community of people at, like called Generations Church that like believes in the spirit-filled life, and they're like getting they're getting like filled with the spirit, and they're like led by the spirit, and like prophecies happening, and they're like speaking tongues and stuff like that, and it's awesome, and it's so great. The spirit-filled life, being filled with the spirit, and and then your neighbors hear about this, and your neighbors are like, oh, that is awesome. I want the spirit-filled life. I want to like like prophesy and like speak in tongues and stuff like that. And you're like, all right, cool. And he's like, and they're like, I don't really want to become a Christian. I just want to speak in tongues. You'd be like, uh, I, I'm, I don't think it works like that. I, I gotta go talk to my pastor, but I think there's this, you're like skipping a big step there, right? There's like this whole new birth thing you gotta do, and right? So, it's not a perfect analogy, but you can understand what it was like for these Jewish Christians. You're skipping the most important thing to them in order to get the reward. So, these Jewish Christians, something else that really, really bothered him, is they were offended at the idea of becoming a follower of Christ without converting to Judaism. And we can, we can start to understand why this was such a struggle for the early church to wrestle with. And the reason why, if we really pinpoint their struggle, it's because for them, faith was synonymous with religion. Faith was synonymous with religion. How can you join the faith without joining the religion. Because religion, to them, is the assemblage of ultimate truth. We've assembled all the ultimate truth. Here's the package, right? It's called Judaism, right? And, and, and that's the way they thought. Truth, faith, was the same as the religion. Here's where it really hit the fan big, because uh, part of being a Jew, a big part of being a Jew is keeping the law. You're supposed to keep the law. It's obeying the rules. And as these Gentile believers, they may have abandoned their pagan beliefs and come over to Christianity, but they hadn't yet abandoned their pagan practices, okay? Uh, their pagan behaviors. These are Gentile believers, so they're bringing their customs, uh, their values of their culture, they're bringing it right along with them. And, and much of, of this stuff was really offensive to the Jews, Really offensive. I mean, these are, these are people getting saved out of like Rome and Corinth, right? These are like swinging cities, right? And they want to be part of the way. And, and the Jews are like, well, that ain't Jerusalem, right? You, that's different. Um, especially like even their eating habits and some of their dietary things. That just really offended the Jews, the Jewish Christians. Another thing is the Jewish Christians are still meeting in the synagogues, like I said. Suddenly there's these Gentiles showing up. They want a fellowship. They want to be part of it. Hey, I want to be part of you. You're, you're my new brothers. All right, we're bros. And so can I come in? Let's, let's all pray together. And these guys, these are ex-pagans. They don't know anything about keeping the Sabbath. They don't know anything about the little ceremonial cleansing you're supposed to do before you walk in the building. You know, the traditions that the Jews thought were absolutely integral to being a child of God. So what was the answer? What was the answer? To begin with, it was really simple to them. We require all of these new Gentile Christians to become Jewish. That's simple. Here's the thing. Becoming a Jew wasn't as simple as like joining a new converts class for an hour for the next four Sundays. <laughs> if you're like a 30-year-old dude and you're converting to Christianity, you get to go through this fun little surgery called circumcision. 
Yeah, right? You think Generations Church's membership standards are, are tough. <laughs> and see, nothing. Acts 15 tells us of this mindset. It says, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Andy Stanley, in his book, he puts it this way. He said, bottom line, the new members' classes were full of women and children. (laughs) While the men waited in the car. (laughs) And thank God, if something hadn't changed, that'd kind of be the way it is today. Be a lot of women and children. But but circumcision turned out to only be the beginning. Because in addition, these new Gentile believers, they would be required to keep the entire law of Moses. And when we're talking about the law of Moses, we're not just talking about the Big Ten, you know, uh, the, you know, coming down the mountain with the things. We're talking about over 600 commandments and traditions you had to keep. It was impossible for even the Jews to keep them all. That's why there was a sacrifice system, because nobody could keep them. It took a lifetime to learn. And so for these Greek and Roman converts, you're setting them up to fail. It's an impossible task, an impossible task. Thankfully, long story short, the church fathers got together, men who were led by the Spirit, who allowed themselves to be led by the Spirit and to listen to the Spirit and to look at the life of Jesus and to let Jesus be their truth. And they got together, men like Paul, Peter, Barnabas, James, the brother of Jesus. They realized, you know what? This is not only impossible, this is unnecessary. It was this famous event known as the Jerusalem Council. You can read all about it in Acts chapter 15. It talks about this this amazing event. There's lots of debate going on and testimonies coming in from all over the empire. How just people are just getting set free. And they declared something monumental they declared that we don't need to make this difficult for the Gentiles who are coming to Christ. Believing in Jesus, walking in love, that's all that's necessary. Because Jesus is the ultimate truth, not a religious system. Jesus is our salvation, not adhering to the law. And and when word of the apostles' decision... The scripture tells us that when word spread throughout the empire, all the Christians that had been scattered all over the place, as word spread, you can imagine it was very well received, especially by the dudes, right? No one had to become Jewish to become a Christian. Gentiles simply had to place their faith in the Messiah and be adopted into the family of God. It was that simple. That's all they had to do. Why? Because Jesus is the only truth that matters. Now, unfortunately, I'm going to bring this to a close. Unfortunately, it didn't stay that way because it's the habit of people to constantly get in the way. And it's why we continue 2,000 years later to have to be vigilant about this. It never stays that way. If you haven't even a, a slight knowledge of church history, you know that there's always been what, what amounts to this invisible force, like, like this gravitational pull Drawing the church in the direction of graceless religion and legalism. And it shows up under a lot of, it shows up in every generation under new disguises, has a lot of new labels. It disguises itself as orthodoxy or holiness or morality or conservatism or liberalism or whatever it is. But when it's all said and done, the message the common message always seems to slip back to the same lie. And that lie is this, that truth is something that you arrive at through a set of rules and regulations and doctrines that we all agree on. It's like becoming really good students. Why does this happen? Because there's this tug within the mind of every human being. There's this tug that pulls us toward religion as a substitute for truth. Religion as a substitute for truth. But Jesus came on the scene and said, guys, the rules have changed. All these religious systems you think of as representing truth are actually like metaphors. They're shadows of the truth, of the truth. Because Jesus says, I am the truth. These are just shadows. 
And Jesus comes along and makes religion redundant. In fact, you know, in the New Testament, I never see him using the word religion to describe our faith. Like somebody might say, what religion are you? And I understand what they're saying. I'm not going to like beat them over the head. How dare you use such a terrible word? You know, they, they mean like, what do you believe? But Jesus never used the word religion <clears throat> or his word for religion to describe our faith. In fact, in the New Testament, that word, whenever it pops up, it's usually a pejorative. It's usually not good. The Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. And when he does that, it makes everything that religion attempts to do obsolete. It makes it obsolete. This is what separates Jesus Christ from every other religious leader, every leader of every other faith. Other leaders have said, I've come, I'm teaching the truth. Or they've come along and said, I'm a prophet of the truth. Jesus comes along and says, I am the truth. So, so as followers of, of Jesus, we have to remember... Like I said, we come to the Bible not just to learn truths about God. We, there is truth there. I'm not saying that. But we come to the Bible not just to learn facts. We come to the Bible to meet Jesus and to know the truth himself. That's the goal. Your relationship with Christ is what sets you free from the sins that enslave you. Jesus is the ultimate expression of God. He doesn't say truth is a religion. He doesn't say it's through a set of rituals. It's not a set of rules and regulations. Truth is not a principle. It is a person. Truth is a person. And he's somebody you can trust with your life. Amen? Amen. I'm going to ask our prayer partners to come forward at this time. And I want to pray for you today. And I want to invite you, if, if you're here today, and it's been a long time since you've ever had a personal encounter with the living truth, truth in the flesh. I invite you to come up, pray with one of our prayer partners up here. They would love to pray with you and just lead you through that process of, of getting to know Jesus more and start a wonderful journey today. If you've never made that decision before in your life, if you've never felt like you've ever met Jesus before, you might have joined a religion before, you might have joined a church before, but if you've never met Jesus, I encourage you to come up because it's different. It's different than anything you've ever experienced before. Come up and let these guys pray with you. Hallelujah. Father God, we love you so much. I thank you, Father, for your goodness, for your mercy. I thank you for your son. Thank you, Jesus, for being the truth. You are the, the word you are the way, the truth, and the life, Father God. I thank you for, for all that you do for us, all that you reveal to us, Lord. I ask you to be with us this week as we walk out of this place, as we now shift our focus of relationship to outreach to the world outside these doors, Lord God. Be with us. Give us strength. Give us courage. Help us to be Jesus to other people. Be the hands and feet of Jesus to other people. Thank you, Father God, for giving us that great privilege. I praise you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Hey, amen. Y'all have a wonderful week. Invite somebody to church, and uh, we'll see you next week.
Joy to say.